Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Here's Pastor Nick. So that first place, the holy place, in that room, there were a few items. One of the items was a lampstand. There were actually several lampstands, and Solomon added some lampstands. There was no natural light. There were no windows in the temple, and that's for a reason. It represents the fact that God is light, and he is a light that exists outside of the natural bodies of light that we have in the world. Okay, there was also an altar of incense that burned day and night, and that altar of incense represented the prayers of the people of God ascending to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. It reminds us. Again, the temple is a picture of heaven, a glimpse into heaven. Everything represented something about heaven. So it tells us that in heaven, God takes joy. He takes pleasure in our prayers as they arise to him. There was also a table inside that first room, the holy place. It was called the table of showbread. And every day, the priests would enter in and they would swap out the bread. And in some cases, they would even eat that bread. Actually, in most cases, they would eat the bread. Now, what that bread spoke of is it spoke of fellowship, spoke of fellowship with God. Wherever you see times of, you know, Psalm 23, it talks about how God seats us at his table. It's this idea of fellowship with God, because oftentimes fellowship takes place around food and around breaking of bread. You know, when we take communion, like today at the end of our service, it speaks of the fact that we have fellowship with God because of what Jesus did for us, because his body was broken on the cross for us. Communion also points us forward to heaven where we, we will be brought to the great wedding feast where we'll sit at the table of the king and dine with him in fellowship forever. Now here's what's interesting. Only the priests were allowed to enter into the temple and they could only enter into the holy place, that first room in the temple. And they would enter in every day to make sure the incense was burning, to change out the bread and to make sure the lamps were lit. But that second room in the temple, the holy place, the most holy place, or the the holy of holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was located. The Ark of the Covenant, remember? Indiana Jones, that's what he was trying to find. The Ark of the Covenant was a box covered in gold, and it was very ornate. Inside this box were held the Ten Commandments. And on the lid of that box were two golden angels, And the wings of these angels met at one point over the top of the box. And this place, was this lid had a name. It was called the mercy seat, the mercy seat. And what it represented was the throne of God. It was an image that meant or represented the throne of God on earth. And on one day a year called Yom Kippur, which means the day of atonement, a sacrifice would be made for the sins of the entire nation. And one priest chosen by lot would be allowed to enter in through the curtain from the holy place into the holy of holies. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for atonement for the entire nation onto the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the people. But he would have to do that once every year. 
And that sacrifice had to be repeated every single year. Now, most people, understand this, most people, if you were a regular Jewish person, you would never be able to enter into the temple, not even into the first room. Only the priests were allowed to enter in, and only one priest on one special day would be allowed to enter into the most holy place, and most priests never got that opportunity in their lives. Outside of the temple, there were two courts. There was a large outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, that's as close as you would ever get. If you were a Jew, you could enter into the inner court, which was uh, called that. It was called the inner courtyard. It's mentioned here in 1 Kings 6, verse 36. It says that Solomon built the walls of it out of stone and then covered them in cedar. And it was there in the inner courtyard that the actual sacrifices took place. That's where there was a a big bronze altar, which was huge. It was big enough to put big animals like bulls onto this altar. They would build a fire underneath it, and there was a big bronze altar. Along with the altar, there was next to it a big bronze wash basin for ritual cleansing. Now, we read here in chapter 7 that Solomon expanded this. He made it bigger than it had been in the tabernacle and more ornate. But again, it spoke of ritual cleansing, and it was used for that purpose. We're told that it took a a total of seven years to build the temple. Remember, that's all hands on deck. One of the things you'll notice in the building of the temple is that they used the absolute best material from the best craftsmen. No uh, cost is spared here. At the end of chapter 5, I find something interesting. We read about the cutting of the stones for the foundation of the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today, one of the, one of the absolute best things you can do while you're in the city is, is two different places, but they're all about the foundation of the temple. You can go into Zechariah's tunnels, and that is the place where they cut the stones for the, the actual temple. You can go into the quarry. It's actually underneath the city of Jerusalem. And you can see, uh, and you go in the other tunnels, which are the tunnels that go to see the actual foundation of the temple, which you can see to this day, huge stones. Imagine stones the size of an RV or a motorhome. Huge stones, and they're cut to the exact specifications so much that you can barely put a piece of paper between the two stones, and there's no mortar used at all to glue them together. Now, here's what we read uh, here in 1 Kings chapter 5. These stones were cut into size at the quarry so that no sound of a chisel or hammer would be heard on the Temple Mount when they were being assembled. All the work was done ahead of time in the quarry. And what's so interesting, though, is this, that they used these best materials to build the foundation. See, the, the problem with that, though, is, of course, is no one ever sees the foundation. Now, nowadays we do because we've built tunnels down to look at them. But in general, nobody sees the foundation of a building. And so it's not usually that important that a foundation be good looking or be of the most uh, precious stones or materials. But I think this speaks of God's work in our lives. Many times, our focus is so much on the outer, what other people see, on the appearance And I see that God's work is so different than that. Look at God's work. He sees below the surface, and he wants those foundational parts of our lives, the parts that nobody sees except for him. He wants those things to be beautiful and strong. He puts a lot of focus on those things. He wants them to have integrity, the parts that nobody sees except for him. As you read through these chapters, again, one thing you'll notice is that they use the very best materials, and they use a lot of gold. It would have been very expensive. And they, use the, they do the finest work they could possibly do. In other words, they cared a lot about excellence. 
And we, as the people of God, we should care a lot about excellence. This is a principle that we see throughout the Bible, particularly in regard to what we give to God. And the principle is this, that we are called to give to God our first and our best. Our first and our best, not our leftovers and the rest, right? Because some of us, that's our tendency, right? We will say, okay, well, I'll keep the first and the best. And if I have anything left over, you know, then I might, maybe I'll give that to God too, you know, if, if I don't forget. Now, now, why? Does God need, you know, fancy wood? Does God need gold? No. But you know who needs it? You do. You need it. You need to give God your first and your best. You know why? Because it trains your heart, It trains your heart. It shapes you as a person when you take that action of giving God your first and your best. One of my mentors always used to put it this way. He would say, when God tells us to give give him our first and our best, that is not God's way of raising money. That is God's way of raising kids. And guess who those kids are? You and me, right? We are his kids. God's raising us. He's shaping our hearts and shaping our minds. He wants to build in us certain characteristics and values. He wants to shape the way that we think about the purpose of our lives and how we relate to the material world around us. You know what happens when you get your paycheck and you give your first and your best to God or to help others? What happens is that it shapes what you do for the rest of the month, literally. It means, well, now I can't do certain things because I did that. And let me tell you what, that's a good thing. Because instantly, guess what? Your heart is more invested in the work of God than it would have been otherwise. You know why? Because like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Material things, money, possessions, you know what they do? They Think about it like an eagle that has talons. Have you ever seen the talons of an eagle? You know, it's money and material possessions, they have this tendency to get their talons, to get their claws into your heart, to get a grip on your heart and get their talons into your heart. But you know what happens when you are generous, when you give away some of what you have to others or for the work of God, you are making a conscious choice that says, I will not let material things sink their claws into my heart. I will remove those claws from my heart because I don't want to be a slave to my possessions. I don't want to be a slave to this material world. Rather, I will use those things for a purpose greater than and other than myself. I will use those things to bless others and to further the work of God and his kingdom in this world because I know that God has a higher calling on my life, a bigger purpose than just my own personal comfort. I'll tell you what, as you do that, as you give your first and your best to bless others and to further the work of God, that will shape you. That will shape you. It's so important and necessary in the world that we live in in particular You know, it it prevents you when you do that. It prevents you from becoming a slave to material possessions. And it keeps your heart and your mind focused on your mission and your purpose and your calling in life from God. Now, conversely, let's just think about that. When you train, what does it train your mind and your heart to do when you reserve the first and the best for yourself? And if there's anything left over, then maybe you, you give that to others and to God. Well, that mentality, that practice, you know what it does? It feeds into our already self-obsessed consumer mentality, which is not only prevalent in the 
culture that we live in today, it is the natural inclination of the human heart to think about ourselves first and others second. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. We have implemented procedures to ensure your safety as we gather for worship and studying God's Word. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person, at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Now, there are so many voices in our culture today that would tell you this. They would say, the key to happiness is to look out for yourself first. Look out for number one. That's the key to happiness. Take care of yourself first. But if we look at Jesus, we see something different, don't we? We see something different. We see a person who lived first and foremost his entire life to serve God and to to serve others. And as a result, he was absolutely miserable, wasn't he? No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. You know what? One of my favorite verses about Jesus in the Bible, Hebrews chapter one, verse nine, it says that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And as a result, God anointed him with the oil of gladness or the oil of happiness above all his companions. You know what that means? That Jesus was the happiest person on the block. He was the happiest person who ever lived. And guys, this is the great paradox. This is the great irony of happiness. The key to happiness is giving, not receiving. The key to happiness is serving rather than needing others to serve you. It is through giving that you find significance and joy in life. And the temple was meant to be a glimpse of heaven. But I want you to notice this as we move on to our next point. Everything in the temple communicated one thing, and that one thing was separation. It communicated separation. You cannot come beyond this point unless you meet these criteria. You cannot come beyond the next point. There were layers of it until finally there was the ultimate layer, that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what it communicated is this. In order to have a relationship with God, in order for you to have communion with God, There are certain things that need to be done in order to overcome these barriers of separation that exist because of your imperfections and impurities, because of your shortcomings in front of a holy God. There are sacrifices that need to be made, but even those sacrifices aren't enough to fix the problem. They just temporarily cover over it. There's washing that needs to be done, but again, that has to be repeated over and over again, and no amount of scrubbing can ever remove once and for all the uncleanness that you have before God. You see, the temple was a glimpse of heaven, but what it communicated was the doors closed. And that's why the temple was not only a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven, but ultimately the temple served as a foreshadowing of something greater which was to come. And that brings us to our final point. The temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven and a picture of who we become in Christ. In the book of Hebrews chapter nine, it tells us that when Jesus died, here's what happened in the heavenly realm. Jesus, the ultimate priest, entered into the actual throne room of God And he brought the blood of the ultimate sacrifice. 
You see, everything that happened in the temple was just a picture, a foreshadowing, a teaser, if you will, of the one great event, the greatest event in all of history, when Jesus, the true priest, the perfect sacrifice, enters into the throne room and presents the blood of himself, the only perfect offering without sin or blemish, not the blood of goats or bulls, but the blood of the one and only sinless son of God who died in your place in order to make atonement for your sins once and for all. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the cleansing to end all cleansings, the sacrifice that makes us clean, the sacrifice that tears down the walls of separation, that opens the door that was formerly closed between a holy God and sinful people so that we can enter into fellowship with him forever and be seated at his table. The temple was a picture, a foreshadowing of the great event that was going to take place and which did take place in God's heavenly throne room when Jesus atoned for our sins in order to remove those walls of separation between us and God. And that is why, once the temple had served its purpose of foreshadowing this great event, the building of the temple was no longer needed. That's why when Jesus was speaking to the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4, you might remember the story he told her. She was asking, where's the right place to worship God, this building or that building? And he told her, I tell you the truth, the day is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will not worship him in temples made by human hands, but they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus told his disciples, do you remember? He says, the day is coming when God is going to allow the temple to be destroyed so that one stone is not left standing on another. And when the disciples heard that, they were confused. They thought, well, if there's no temple, how will we make the sacrifices that are required for fellowship with God? And it was only later on that they understood Jesus was that sacrifice that was required for fellowship with God. The temple was a picture of who we become in Christ. And look at what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul the Apostle writes to them and he says, because of what Jesus did, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Check this out. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together grows up into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the New Testament, here and elsewhere, we who are believers in Jesus, who've been redeemed and born again, we are called the temple of the living God, both individually and corporately. See, by becoming, when you become a child of God, by embracing the gospel by faith, God places his Holy Spirit inside of you. Just like how in the temple, God was always omnipresent, but he dwelt in that place in a special way. Now that same thing is true of you. God's spirit indwells you in a special way. You are the temple of the living God. If you have given your life to him, he has placed his presence, his spirit inside of you. But that's not all. We're told here in this passage in Ephesians that what the Apostle Paul is telling us, we are not just individually temples of the living God, but corporately we are together the temple of the living God. We are living stones. Each of us has our place in this building the structure that God is building. He says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You know what that is? That's the Bible, the word of God. 
That's the foundation of our faith. That's the foundation of the church, the revealed will of God in the scriptures. But the cornerstone is Jesus Christ, and it is in him that we grow together into this holy temple. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, we are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it's some sort of support group or club. Rather, Christ died for his people, and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. See, God has kept his promise that he made back then, hasn't he? To dwell among his people. But when Paul refers to Jesus as the cornerstone, know this. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, who referred to the Messiah by this term, the cornerstone. He said, if you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. But here's an interesting fact for you. Do you know what, which verse is the, in the Old Testament is quoted more than any other time in the New Testament? So which Old Testament verse is used the most in the New Testament? Here it is, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what's that talking about? What it's talking about is a story which is not found in the Bible. It's a Jewish tradition. But the story was very widespread. And here's the story. that Remember, like we read in chapter 5, they were quarrying the stones for the temple, for the foundation. As they were doing that, they brought the stones out to be put into place. And there was one stone that was a different size than all the others. It didn't fit in with all the others. And so the builders assumed that that stone was a mistake. And so they cast it out, they threw it, they rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley, which, by the way, is where they used to roll the trash of the city. And so the builders, they assume that's a cornerstone, so they reject it. And then later on, they found out that that stone they had cast away was actually the cornerstone of the foundation. Now, that tradition is what is being talked about there in Psalm 118. Interesting story, right? Why does it matter? Here's why. Because in Luke chapter 20, Jesus takes that verse, that most quoted Old Testament verse, uh, and he says this, this, hey, you know that verse? That's actually about me. That's actually about me. I am the cornerstone, the Messiah, the most crucial, the most important one upon which everything stands or falls. And in the same way that during the building of the temple, the builders rejected the cornerstone, in the same way, there are people who will look at me and they will reject me. They will say, you don't fit in with how I want to live my life. But by doing so, They're throwing away the cornerstone, the foundation for their lives and for everything else. And without me, everything will eventually collapse. And Jesus concluded his words there by saying something really interesting. In Luke 20, verse 18, Jesus says this, not only am I the cornerstone which Isaiah spoke of, the the promised Messiah, but every person has a choice. Either you will fall upon me or I will fall upon you. He says it this way, everyone who falls upon me will be broken to pieces, but on whomever I fall, I will scatter them like dust. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Jesus is the cornerstone. Either you will cast yourself upon him as your savior, as the foundation stone, the cornerstone for your life, or he will fall upon you as a judge. To cast yourself upon him, it requires humility, doesn't it? It requires admitting that you need him to be your cornerstone, your foundation, your savior. That requires humility. It means admitting that you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself, that you need forgiveness. You need him to be your strength and foundation of your life. 
So if you do that, if you cast yourself upon him out of necessity, you will be broken in humility. But if you refuse to do that, the other option's worse. It means that he will fall upon you in judgment and you will be scattered like dust. I want to leave you with this thought as I end. The temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven and a picture of who we become in Christ. How will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? Will you resist him until his judgment eventually falls upon you and scatters you like dust? Or will you cast yourself upon him in brokenness and humility and make him the cornerstone of your life? I encourage you to do that until we one day, face to face, enter into that true home with him forever. Amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.